Book One From the Point of View of Mrs. Gildea. Chapter Six of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Mrs. Gildea was too busy in the next two or three weeks to trouble herself unduly over Lady Bridget O'Hara's tragic love affair. She had to report on the small holders of property in Leichardt's Land and made a trip for that purpose among the free selectors in her own old district. The twenty years after letter she wrote about this expedition for the imperialist was one of her best, and for that she was greatly indebted to Colin McKeith's commentaries. Old associations with him had been vividly reawakened by this visit to the home of her youth. She remembered, as if it had been yesterday, how McKeith, a raw youth of eighteen with a horrible tragedy at the back of his young life, had been picked up by her father and brought to Bungrapham to learn the work of a cattle station. Hitherto his experience, such as it was, had been with sheep in the then unsettled north. Joan was herself a girl in short frocks, three or four years younger than Colin McKeith, and with no apparent prospect of ever crossing the big fella water, as the Ubi Blacks called it, or of joining the band of Bohemian scribblers in London. She remembered how quickly Colin had learned his work, remembered how the shy, self-contained lad with always that grim memory of his boyhood shaping a vengeful purpose in his mind and making him old for his years, had developed the flair of the bush in his hardy Scotch constitution. She was compelled to own that he had developed, too, some of the worst as well as the best of those Scotch qualities inherited from his parents, expatriated though they had been, and from the staunch clansmen behind them. He had the Scotch loyalty, likewise the Scotch tenacity of character, which never forgot and very seldom forgave. The Scotch obstinacy of purpose and opinion, the Scotch acquisitiveness, a tendency, too, to nearness in matters of small expenditure, which combined oddly with a generosity amounting almost to recklessness in large enterprise. It was, on the whole, not a bad outfit for a pioneer who meant to get on in his world. The beginnings were small, but indicative of the trend of his career. He contrived, even when he was earning no salary, but working only for his tucker, to get together a horse or two, a cow or two, a specially good cattle dog or two, which last he made the nucleus of a profitable breed. The cows and bullocks he left at Bungrapham when the time came for him to push out, reclaiming them after they had increased and multiplied in those pleasant pastures, like Jacob's herbs in the fields of Laban. Not that there was any seven years matrimonial question, there had been no Leah, or if Joan Gildea had ever played the part of Rachel in Colin McKeith's sentimental dreams, those boyish dreams had left no serious mark upon him. He had gone north to a newly formed station, and had there outbushed the bushman in his knowledge of the idiosyncrasies of cattle and sheep, and his amazing faculty for spotting countries suitable for either. Here, no doubt, his descent from generations of herdsmen had stood him in good stead. He sold his knowledge to rich squatters in the settled districts, who employed him to take up new country for them, and to manage the hundreds of square miles and the thousands of stock from which they derived the best part of their wealth. But he only managed for other men, until he had made enough money of his own to take up and stock new country for himself. In a few years he had acquired a moderate-sized herd, and established himself with it on the almost unexplored reaches of the Upper Lura. Life on that river never lacked dangerous adventure. McKeith's father had owned a station on the lower Lura. The bank took it in payment of their mortgage after the catastrophe occurred. That station had been the scene of one of the most horrible native outrages in the history of Australia. 
the tragedy had set its mark on colin mckeith left a penniless boy after having worked his way to independent manhood he had made it his purpose to pursue the wild black with relentless animosity all along the upper Lura to the fastnesses at the river's head where his new station stood on the boundaries of civilization he had gone mercilessly punishing native depredations he had been put on trial by a humanitarian government for so-called manslaughter of natives and had been acquitted under an administration immediately succeeding it afterwards he had at the peril of his life made an exploring trip across the base of the northern peninsula of the colony with the intention as he phrased it of shaking round a bit he shook round to some purpose penetrated to the big bite and got on the tracks of a famous lost explorer colin mckeith solved the mystery of that explorer's fate and had his revenge on the government which had impeached him by pocketing the reward which it had offered any adventurous pioneer following on the lost explorer's steps later mckeith was given a mission to explore and develop a certain tract of fertile country between the heads of the Lura and the Big Bite, the particular premier instigating the mission being a far-sighted politician who realised that a Japanese invasion of the northern coast might eventually interfere very radically with the plan for a white Australia. Colin McKeith threw into his own scheme of life a trip to Japan by way of India and China. He volunteered, too, for the Boer War, and did a short term of service with the Australian contingent in South Africa. He dreamed more and more of becoming an empire-maker, a sort of Australian Cecil Rhodes, but he was wise enough to realise that all empire-making cannot be on the Rhodesian scale. He realised that his personal fortune must first be secured. Without money, one can do nothing. Cecil Rhodes had had the natural wealth of Rhodesia at his back. McKeith had set himself the task of opening up the fine country out west, which he knew only needed a system of irrigation by artesian bores to defy drought, the squatter's curse. That object once accomplished, he gave himself with luck and good seasons five or six years, there would be nothing to stop his becoming a patriot and a millionaire. But Colin went slowly and cannily, and that was why the Leichhardt's land government believed in him. He had the reputation of never spending a penny on his private or public ambitions where a halfpenny would serve his purpose, and he was known to be a man of deep counsels and sparing of speech. Thus, no one knew exactly what was his business down south at this time. Only the general remark was that Colin McKeith had his head screwed on the right way, and that some day he would come out on top. But that there was deep down a spring of romance beneath that hard bushman's exterior, Joan Gildea, herself a romance writer, guessed easily. And her intuition told her that a little thin bore had been made in the direction of that vital spring of romance by his inadvertent reading of Lady Bridget O'Hara's letter. End of Book One, Chapter Six.